welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. On today's show, we're talking college radio, which has been a key part of radio culture in the United States for the entire 100-year history of radio. College radio, oftentimes the very definition of underground, especially in the years 1965 to 1996 when the baby boomers and Gen X carved out a youthful niche on the college radio airwaves. Our guest on Radio Survivor today is writing a book on the history of college radio, and I'm very excited that we're going to talk about uh, the Beastie Boys personally, but that's going to come later. I know that Paul is very excited to talk about the the myth of the outsized uh, importance of FCC obscenity violations, and Jennifer is very excited to talk about college radio for the full hour. All of that coming up on today's episode. Uh, so glad to be here. I, my name is Eric Klein, and with me is Paul Reismandel and Hello. Jennifer Waits. Hello. So Jennifer, I know I know you're very excited to get into this and Kate, you're writing a book about college radio and and you I mean, it's difficult to cover the history. You you you're kind of selecting some years, right, about in college radio history. So which which era are you writing about? So I'm starting when colleges began adding signals on the FM band, um, which even though it opened in the 1940s, they were very slow to take off and they really don't start accelerating until the 1960s into the 1970s. And so I look at, you know, as those stations come online, how do they identify themselves and then how do they kind of develop their own identity on radio and influence radio culture and musical culture more broadly and develop, you know, the sort of this modern idea, modern sensibility of college radio and develop sort of its own its own methods, its own um, identity with its own sort of traditions and boundaries and gatekeeping that goes on with that. And then, you know, I go through the 1990s, you know, really through, you know, kind of the peak or I'm going to put golden age in scare quotes. Um, so imagine, imagine that, um, you know, when it really reaches this peak and we hit the era of, you know, the, so, the supposed digital disruption that, you know, the rise of internet streaming sort of changes that culture, alters it or displaces it in some way. So I'm really, you know, delving into radio on the ground at these stations, what I can find through archival resources that are uh, housed at various colleges and universities and sometimes in radio stations themselves to really get a sense of what it was like to do college radio from the people who were actually, you know, on the mic and, you know, setting programs and dealing with listeners and students and administrators. So you sort of alluded to this just before. So, so Kate, you're an associate professor at Fitchburg State University in Massachusetts, and that this is, we sort of call it a golden era of college radio. Why is it considered a golden era and maybe why is that a misnomer? Yeah, there's, there's even, I would add, you know, there's even this mythology I think about, especially the 1980s in college radio and, and, you know, in recent, in recent months, weeks, years, you know, I've even heard about college radio seemed to start in the 1980s and, you know, with bands like REM so I, I've also, Kate, been very interested in why there's this mythology about the 1980s being the heyday of college radio. And is it the heyday of college radio? Yeah, I mean, it's the heyday for a certain type of college radio and for a certain meaning. But I think one of the ways that I'm approaching this idea of a golden age and historicizing it is to 
understand, you know, first of all, there is no golden age. If you, if you really start to talk to people about their experiences, their sense of the golden age is always usually like a few years before they got there. You know, there's always like this cohort of people who like, they knew the people who were trained by them and they really understood college radio and they really were like, you know, sort of the standard bearers and everything else, you know, we've all just kind of like fallen from the standard. This is a story that I, I keep hearing. And I actually had somebody um, in one of my recent interviews articulated just that way, right? He's, he's like, you know, we always, I always hear this golden age idea, but was it, was it ever really that? And what I found in my research is that these, you know, there is no golden age, but instead it's always a series of these tensions or these conflicts over what college radio means. And so what it is, you know, the reason people have such um, a veneration for the people that came before them is because they saw in them, uh, you know, sort of a, a, not strident maybe, but sometimes strident, um, but very full-throated articulation of what college radio meant to them and why it was important and, you know, against some other claimant, whether it was external or from within the university or even from within the station. And so the, the history of college radio is really about, you know, a limited bandwidth because, you know, we're limited by physics in the number of radio stations there can be in any one place. And so somebody's got to decide, you know, who gets access, what gets played, who has control, and, and who that's, that public resource serves. And because, you know, by the 80s, there's an era of consolidation starting, deregulation is coming, that access to get, you know, space on the airwaves is becoming harder. I want to talk about very quickly, and then hopefully maybe you can deconstruct why this myth is in my head, that for me, college radio, especially in the 80s and 90s, is so important because, I mean, this is the moment where college radio DJs were able to define an entire genre of music and break bands out of out of the underground into the mainstream, right? And, and I don't know if that mm-hmm. was something that college radio... Uh, it functions as in, in, you know, in this decade that we're living in now any or any decade before that. I mean, that's why I'm excited to talk about the Beastie Boys, because mm-hmm. in my understanding of this time period, the Beastie Boys weren't being played on the radio unless it was college radio in the mm-hmm. in the late 80s, early 90s. And then that's why the Beastie Boys become popular on MTV. That's why the Beastie Boys become, you know, the Beatles for Gen X. And it's because college radio uh, cared about them first, and that's why it's important. Or second, <laughs> well, they, they had a pop hit. I mean, their debut album was the best-selling rap album at the time it hit. You know, mm-hmm. licensed to ill. It wasn't actually a college radio hit, right? I think you know. And and Kate, I'll let you. You're an expert. I'll let you tell the story. But I think you know it, there's a complication even with that Beastie Boys story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so definitely in the 80s, college radio gets on the radar of the music industry. And it's really ironic because at the end of the 1970s, major labels were cutting their college radio promotional staff and they were adding record service fees. So usually, you know, starting in the 50s, um, record labels would give free record service, promotional record service to college stations, knowing that they are reaching a certain target audience um, for their for their products. And by so but you episode. just mean that they were record labels were sending out records to radio stations. Yeah, you know, and there were different they lists would play that them. they 
subscribe to. And, you know, depending, you know, so they'd have the classical radio list or classical music list, they would have the jazz list. Um, so it sort of varied across different, um, um, different labels and different t- genres. But in general, you know, they had access to free, free records. And so they start implementing fees. And Arista Records, in particular, institutes an across-the-board fee for its record service. And uh, Wesleyan Station, WESU, orchestrates a boycott, mostly of stations within the Northeast. Uh, so that's another component to this is that, you know, these it's still a very much regional and local in nature. Um, you know, the different markets have always have different kinds of radio, um, kind of, you know, different players within their radio market. And... So they're able to kind of coordinate a bunch across a bunch of Northeastern stations to boycott playing Arista's new releases. And it goes on for a few months and, you know, they do get a lot of press. They get covered at Billboard and they, they shake things up. Um, and what, actually, how much were they trying to charge them it for? Varied, the um, it depended on the station and their wattage, but it could be up to $300, which for underfunded stations. So that, that's $300 per release $300 per um, quarter like per, kind of annum. per cycle yeah i think you know i think it was usually per year or academic year i don't think it was by semester and it did vary depending on the station so, so less than buying the records at retail because the volume of mm-hmm. records that have been significant would be fairly significant but definitely a real cost especially to stations with relatively tiny budgets who may not have budgeted for it at all and who are otherwise accustomed to receiving the records for free in exchange for playing them on the air and promoting artists exactly yeah you know if you're talking about a station you know their their biggest technical you know setup costs had already been clear but they maybe had like one part-time staffer if that and you know maybe they paid for the engineer or something so so it did constitute you know a hit on their budget but it also kind of cut to cut to the heart of what these stations were beginning to see themselves as which was you know we play the things that are outside of the mainstream that the 70s is really about uh, defining alternative radio and, you know, against sort of the, the, the nationalization um, and syndicated programming of NPR, you know, college stations are playing, you know, basically AOR, um, jazz, funk, um, folk music, you know, but in a wider frame. So things that weren't getting into the regular rotations on AOR stations as they're kind of starting to limit their by AOR you're talking about album oriented rock you're talking about stations uh you know what we 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 traditionally think of as 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 rock stations sometimes classic rock and kind of came out of that freeform tradition on fm Mm -hmm. you know and and the idea album oriented meaning that stations would be more likely to play album cuts not just singles not just the hits right but then it might be difficult for listeners who are millennials or younger to (laughs) even imagine that there was a time where radio didn't sound like that yeah. but i think that's an important part of radio history that at one time uh the radio was different yeah and, <laughs> and, and but then over time it became kind of consolidated as a format and so it means less that we're playing deep cuts uh so much as that uh you know we are playing maybe a few different cuts off of something that's already 10 20 30 years old several different cuts off of pink floyd's uh dark side of the moon rather than just money Right. Yeah. And if we're talking about sort of that golden age mythology, I think, you know, much about the 1980s is sort of the power of an individual DJ, right? There's a very Mm. kind of meritocratic sense, like, you know, what, what I know, what is good music. I'm, you know, a tastemaker. I'm going to go out to the clubs. I'm going to see a band and I'm going to figure out what's good. I'm going to play them on my radio show. 
and you know they'll develop this following and I kind of like help break this band but th- that puts a lot of pressure on you know individual choice for the DJs but a lot of stations you know they had rotations you know, it gets back to the Beastie Boys question you know that they had at college stations they're trying to emulate what was going on in commercial radio to a certain extent because they wanted to train future broadcasters so they um I actually tweeted an example of the Beastie Boys making it onto WRAS at Georgia State's rotation. I get, um, and by rotation, we're going to break down. We have folks, who, <laughs> you know, the, well, we have listeners who come from all over, right? And some folks have worked in radio. Some folks have always been in like a community station where maybe they've always been able to pick their own music. So rotation means that's the set of 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 sometimes singles, sometimes uh, full albums, which a music director says you need to play from this. And and depending mm-hmm. on the station, the rotation might be tight. It might say you need to play these every hour you need to play these every so often and in other stations it may be well you need to play from this set of of albums during your show but you definitely have to do it and then everything else is your choice it it varies but having a rotation means these are songs we're we're definitively putting onto our airways by choice yeah like we're featuring during this period of time and if you look at at publications industry publications you Mm -hmm. might see terms like heavy medium and light rotation Mm -hmm. And Kate, you've probably run across some of these same materials that I've seen where uh, a station might create a list of their playlist or, you know, the music that they've added during a given period of time. And they'll even have categories like this is heavy rotation, this Mm -hmm. is medium, this is light. And they would even send those lists to people at record labels because the label representatives would want to know, did you add our album and are you putting it, what rotation are you putting it into? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one of the things that they do um, as they start to professionalize in the eighties is they also connect to local record stores, you know, so here's our rotation, you know, what, what are you guys selling? And they would collect that sales information and send it back to the labels. So the labels could then track that through fair, but from this, you know, them giving a promotional record to the station, to the station playing it on the air at a certain level, to it selling records in a local record store. And so, you know, with the Beastie Boys, when they get added to the light rotation, which was the C list at WRAS in 1985, it's December 1985, you know, you see it enter in the light rotation. And, you know, in like a month, it's in the heavy rotation. It like immediately gets bumped up to the highest level really quickly showing that there's like a lot of momentum. And that's that the record. license to ill album. Is that the album? The very first. Yeah. One? There okay. was, yeah. I'm still parsing um, a couple of the different, cause there's one from Columbia, which I think was Def Jam's distributor. Yes. That's, that. Yeah. Yeah. That's correct. So, you know, following up the, the Beastie Boys thread, I think this is interesting uh, because my perception as being a teenager in that time, the target audience for the Beastie Boys when License Tale comes out is that I know it because I saw it on TV, MTV. I know it from pop radio. I, I didn't conceive of them as a band that was broken on college radio, but rather something that went seems directly into the pop charts by my recollection there. However, the story I, I have in my head, and maybe you you can you can tell me I'm wrong or we can kind of articulate it, is that they're, they then kind of disappeared, right? So they have big hits with things like um, uh, Fight for Your Right to Party, 85, and then they're really not heard from again for about four years, which in, in kind of pop music terms, especially in the 80s, that's an eternity for there to be a gap. And their follow-up album is Paul's Boutique. 
goes nowhere in terms of the pop charts. It is it is not the hit that everyone is expecting from them. But I remember I was in college radio in 1989, and I remember how excited everyone was for this new record because it was a new sound, uh, because it was a, a, such a, a rich pastiche of samples um, that they yeah. put together and with the we, Dust Brothers. And we have recently learned, well, recently, it's been years ago now, but on Radio Survivor, we learned that the Dust Brothers had their um, immediate roots in college radio when they were producing the Beastie Boys uh, sophomore effort, this this uh, record that may or may not have been intentionally non-commercial, depending on the mythology you listen to. But mm-hmm. we know that the Dust Brothers were making college radio when they were radio producers, when uh, around the same era that the Beastie Boys uh, tapped them to, to produce Paul's Boutique. Right. And that at the time, um, it seemed to me that college radio embraced it and in some ways embraced it because they felt like, oh, we thought these, you know, the Beastie Boys were these bratty, kind of fratty kind of guys, not that interesting, but turned out it showed they had more depth and this is a more interesting album and kind of liked that it was sort of not non not commercial in the way that that Fight for Your Right to Party was was commercial. And I, it was, I think I remember Beastie it was, Boys were they were explicitly making an album that would appeal to college radio. Maybe. I don't know if that I, I don't know if that's what they did. Well, that's the mythology. Right? That's the mythology. For, for their, um, for their uh, alternative bona fides, right? That they made this album. I don't know. I mean, I mean, this is again, this is a mythology, right? It, 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 and so, you know, I wanted to throw to you, Kate, this is, you know, to my recollection, and I remember even seeing them in the College Music Journal, CMJ, right, listed mm-hmm. out and, and such. And And so is that, you know, is that an accurate history that, that sort of college radio sort of almost saved the Beastie Boys or, or you know, w- was college radio a champion of the Beastie Boys all the time? It seems to be a fairly uh, complex uh, dialectic, if you will. It is. Well, it's really hard to find, you know, a national, you know, what is college radio, right? It's a mixture of all of these individual stations, each of which has their own programming philosophy. So they can do things at a collective level. And you've got an industry publication like CMJ that is tracking the different charts. And so at a collective level, you might see, you know, the, the playlist of the, an album rising through the ranks of CMJ, but, you know, at an individual station, you know, you might never have heard it because they just didn't put it in rotation because they thought, saw it as a major label sellout or whatever, and they don't play that at their station. And, you know, Jennifer could talk about this too, but, you know, I mean, but the thing is, is that the Beastie Boys, you know, their first EP, their hardcore EP got play on their first demo, even got play on the WNYU. And you said their hardcore, hardcore the EP. I'm, I'm going to ask you to explain this because <laughs> most people think of, you know, the, the casual fan yeah. even may think of the Beastie Boys as a rap art, as a rap band, a mm-hmm. rap artist, hip hop artist. So you're yeah, talking and- about before licensed ill there there was a different version of the beastie boys yeah they kind of came together around the hardcore scene you know they were all i think they met at a at a bad brains show um in in new york city in the early 1980s but at that moment right there was this convergence between kind of the the hardcore punk scene and the hip-hop rap scene in new york city right they're kind of coming together and they're part of that melding and you know they were just interested in experimenting and trying new sounds and and, and seeing, you know, what they could throw against the wall or play around with that was funny and make stick. And in their, in the Beastie Boys book, they didn't talk about it in the documentary, which I highly recommend though. I've watched it 
was it uh, the oh, night the, before? Monday the new night. documentary it, that's on on uh, I think it's on Apple TV Plus, right? Is that is yeah, that where it is? Yes. Yeah, okay. Um, and they, you know, it was from the live show that they did from the book, and I highly recommend the book, especially too, because they've got so many great artifacts in there. But they talk about recording their first demo, and they were so excited to get it played on a college show, and it was like one guy at WNYU who who picked up on it and and that's the thing is that you know we think of college radio as this space for you know avant-garde anti-commercial um you know authenticity all of these kind of words that get loaded onto this idea but you know a lot of times especially in the early 80s you know there'd be like one hardcore show from midnight to 2 a.m and the rest of it was you know kind of day parted and you have more mainstream rock and you might even have a disco show and then you would have, you know, your folk show or your jazz show. It's all divided up into block programming. So, you know, what is college radio? Is, you know, the guy with the folk show not college radio because mm-hmm. he's not playing hardcore, right? It doesn't, um, there's that, no uh, kind of. <laughs> yeah, that really resonates for me too as as a 1980s college radio music director in my past. And I remember, like, you've been mentioning some of these battles and they even happen at radio stations where, a music director might have this really cool idea of what the station's air sound is and what we should be adding and playing and, and, and putting that um, outward face out to all the cool record labels that we wanted to get, you know, free records from. But I remember a lot of our DJs were playing very mainstream stuff like Bruce Springsteen and, you know, like how, (laughs) so how do we get, you know, people at our station to play this edgier stuff that like the hipster leaning, you know, the music directors who always think they're cooler than everyone else, you know, like we were always trying to get people to push the boundaries. And, and so I think that's right that every station has, has its own story. And even within that station, there are battles over what gets played. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's between students and sometimes it's between students and community DJs who see themselves as serving very different audiences or very different, you know, musical goals or ethos or, or types of expression. And, you know, again, just like there's only so many radio frequencies, there's only so many hours in a week. And, you know, somebody's got to make the decision of, you know, what show gets what kind of coverage or what genre gets what kind of coverage. And there can be some real fierce territorial battles that take place over that. Mm-hmm. We talked so we we became obsessed about the Beastie Boys today as we're talking about college radio with our guest Kate Jewell, who's ri- who's writing a book about the history of college radio in the you know in the in the baby boomer and Gen X days. If I if I don't embarrass myself by labeling those years, it's a uh, 1965 to 1996. Is there is there a better example of a band that can um, that that college radio can have the credit for their success? Uh, during these years in this era? Sure. I mean, you know, there's a lot of bands that that label gets attached to, you know, the college, you know, so REM is, you know, the number one, right. And they're seen as almost like a progenitor, like they're pushing this identity. And, you know, Grace Hale has a new book out called Cool Town about Athens. And, you know, really what REM represented was the growth of this new kind of bohemian music scene. So in some ways, college radio is just reflecting what is going on. And, you know, as, as all of these kind of new bohemias are springing up um, across the country and we can, you know, rattle off all these different music scenes from, you know, Seattle and Olympia to 
um, Chapel Hill around you know, in North Carolina, um, all across the country. And they all, all have the college own, towns, all the college towns and, and, and larger cities with their kind of, you know, bifurcated scenes or, you know, divided up scenes locally, which again, might have like one, you know, one guy kind of playing their records or something on, on a local college show. Um, but it's, I'm going back into my, my golden age, um, you know, kind of concept. So I'm trying to think of, I guess, the replacements, you know, but one of the genres that I think often gets lost in all of this is hip hop. Mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. hip hop was on college radio. The public Enemy formed at WBAU at Adelphi University as you know, when they were DJs. I talked to the, the station engineer who was there for, for years, for decades. He helped engineer the show. He would give Flavor Flav um, a ride home after a Saturday night show. And, you know, that they, these hip hop artists were also looking at college radio community stations to air what was going on in, in those scenes as well. And that's, what's interesting about, you know, the, the mythology trap is that we tend to think of the REMs, the replacements, you know, white male bands. Uh, in the and, 90s that's of, and that's part of like the whole college rock thing, right? Mm-hmm. That like this whole college radio sound gets equated with college rock so why do you think that is that hip hop, um, you know, doesn't get equated with college radio the way it should be? Um, well, I mean, the structure of the scene is different. Um, I mean, not, and it's it's still it's always regional, and, and as I guess indie rock is too. So I don't know how far I want to take that argument, but it's um, I think it gets a much shorter shrift and a much harsher treatment from within college radio. Um, but also from administrators, you know, so like at Vanderbilt University, when, when I was there in the late nineties had a very vibrant hip hop show. Um, there was a general manager who went on to become a hip hop producer on um, Jay Egon, who was instrumental in kind of connecting into the Nashville and Atlanta hip hop scenes that were, um, you know, really taking off at that point. Um, but in 1989, there was a show called uh, 91 rap where there was a, you know, they're having a party kind of in the station and the guy, the DJ was playing records and, you know, some high schoolers showed up and they got into a fight and somebody yelled something that was not okay and to be broadcast. And the administration came in and shut down the station for months Mm. to kind of over, you know, overhaul it. Meanwhile, you know, just a year before some students hosting a political show had KKK members on as guests, but they just got a slap on the wrist. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's like one type of violation, you know, gets like tamped down on, you know, very, very hard, whereas the other is just kind of let go. Mm-hmm. And you kind of see that that pattern kind of emerge um, when you start looking across all of these different stations, just see that there is a tendency, you know, for many different reasons and, and different contextual reasons, po- politics and what's going on in the music industry as well, to treat hip hop and hip hop artists differently. I think that's a, that's a vein, a very rich vein, I think, uh, and, and, and a, a less known and less understood kind of direction in, in college radio history. And we definitely want to get back to in a moment. Uh, the voice you just heard is Kate Jewell, professor of history at Fitchburg State University in Massachusetts. Kate is writing a book about this uh, supposed golden era of college radio, although, Kate, you're not calling it that <laughs> unless your publisher forces you to, I suppose. And this is Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Paul Reesman. I'm also joined by Jennifer Waits and by 
by Eric Klein. I, it's like a, um, it's very tempting for a Gen Xer to call it the golden age and stick with it. Um, it and then make that makes me feel like a, like somebody who I, a fourteen year old who I live with will okay boomer me uh, for feeling that way. But but that is neither here nor there. So looking at you know this idea of an administration at a college or university with a station sort of coming down hard on one infraction aired on a, on a hip hop show versus, um, you know, a, a supposed public affairs show that invited the KKK on for an interview and, and they're only being sort of a light slap on the wrist. It seems to me that, you know, along with this sort of a rise in, in colleges and universities having stations, and then also those stations finding influence, finding listeners. Uh, there's this complex relationship then with administrations, which I think alternately see their stations as as threats or liabilities at times, such as when someone says something untoward on the air, um, uh, you know, and all the way to, to fearing that their actual financial liability, should they get an FCC fine, as well as, you know, probably some college universities looking at this is also a positive, right? That, that it's good to bring, uh, to see that there's this influence being had by their stations. Um, you know, and you've, you've been kind of looking into this history, Kate, of, of how, you know, complaints and, and this kind of plays out. And I'm curious, you know, I'm trying to frame this into a, into, into a question because there's a lot going on there, but what is your sense? I mean, you know, from somebody who was in college radio myself as, as a college student in the late eighties and early nineties. And then I was a college radio advisor, you know, some 20 years later, uh, you know, I, it was still to me very present as a college radio advisor in in the uh, around 2010 that you know you got to keep those college students under control right you got to keep them under control you got to make sure they don't go saying naughty things on the air principally seemed to be what everyone was worried about and and that seems to be an endless concern but was it was it a real concern you know was it is it is it a real risk so the actual number of fines actual financial fines to stations. Uh, I have not been able to count that, that many. Mm-hmm. Um, and so know, by not that many, you're talking uh, fewer than 10, more than 20. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fewer than, I mean, that's not, and we're talking about, and we're talking about FCC. Oh, sorry. We're talking about S- FCC violations here. There might be other sorts of complaints against stations, but you're looking right. at FCC licensed stations who maybe people were annoyed and made a complaint somewhere. <laughs> yeah, complaint complaints are different than fines, mm-hmm. <laughs> and there are lots and lots and lots and lots of complaints. Mm-hmm. Um, that and usually, complaints in the community, typically, or from, from all over. Yeah, from the community, from from all over. Sometimes they are orchestrated. You know, sometimes you've got um, media watchdog groups who are listening, trying to catch people, because of course it's all taking place in this larger political context, political and cultural context of the culture wars. And, you know, that really the first broadcast fine for, for obscenity of any kind and decency is really in 1970 is it's mm-hmm. real. The FCC before this was much more concerned with questions of, you know, fairness and, and access and, um, and broadcasters, you know, did have tight control over what was going on. You know, Ed Sullivan had a lot of control over what, how Elvis was framed or what the Rolling Stones were saying on the air. Um, you know, so you got them to change a lyric of a song. But, you know, as you get more sort of expressive culture, 
um, cultural expressions on the rise, it's, it's, it's more likely that you're going to get something that's uttered that violates one of the definitions of obscenity, which, you know, they're looking to community interest, right? It's sort of, you know, defined by what the, you know, the larger community surrounding a station might find offensive. That's, they're going to like Mm -hmm. the local definition of what would be offensive. Um, But, you know, the big one comes in the 80s, thanks to the PMRC. Um, It goes to the Santa Barbara Resource Center. Yes, and Tipper Gore and, you know, Dee Snyder and Frank Zappa and John Denver in front of congressional hearings and that kind of thing. And they actually do help people who are listening and are offended. They instruct them in how to to submit a complaint to the FCC and get it paid attention to and so they're so, looking after you know the pmrc was particularly looking after lyrical content in the songs mm-hmm. right a little right. less yeah. so they were... about technical violations of like frequency modulation problems like that does happen too mm-hmm. but this is about yeah content like naughty things being said could you um just for people who might not have been around when the pmrc first started they were worried about the children right they mm-hmm. they were concerned about children hearing naughty things and and what has been the outcome of, of the PMRC today? And so the PMRC- is it all is it all mm-hmm. about two live crew? Is that fair? <laughs> <laughs> They're late comers. Uh, They're late comers. <laughs> or heavy it's metal, an anything. And heavy metal. Occult yeah. lyrics were also something that they were worried about. Um, so it was a group of Washington wives, um, Tipper Gore, um, um, Mrs. James A. Baker. Yeah, and this was a bipartisan kind of group, and they were all generally genuinely concerned you know what are my children going to we're going to turn on the radio we're going to flip the dial and what are we going to hear and is it going to be something that's okay for my seven-year-old to hear and so you know they're really worried about this kind of moral influence on their children and, and so it, they okay is that so mm-hmm. is that because was there was there naughty stuff on the radio that they were hearing did that prompt the formation of the pmrc yeah so the story goes that tipper gore was was flipping through the station i think it was i think I don't remember exactly. So they develop a list of songs, the Filthy 15, which is sort of the first kind of list of, and they kind of run the gamut from, you know, more kind of, you know, sexually explicit lyrical content to occult references to, um, you know, to violence. And, and they kind of develop this list of songs that are, you know, offenders that they, that you might hear on the radio or that they might, you know, have a lyric kind of bleeped out or something like that. Um, And a listener in Santa Barbara, California, was very concerned about his local college radio station, the direction it was going. And he was a repeat listener. He would tape the shows to try and find things that were offending to him. And finally latched onto this one song by a band called the Pork Dukes and um, email or email (laughs) wrote a letter to Tipper Gore and got advice about how to, how to complain to the FCC and the KCSB was eventually fined alongside um, the Pacifica station in San Francisco um, for playing a play that referenced gay sex and a um, a two broadcasts of Howard Stern. So that was a big fine. And that sends, yeah, sends kind of a ripple effect. And and what year was this? This was um, 85, 86, 87 is really when this is going on. Eventually, the music industry responds by putting, and really what they were interested in, you know, is, is kids going and buying CDs and taking them home and listening to them and, you know, getting kind of wrapped up in occult, you know, imaginings or something like that. Um, eventually, the as, as well as gangster rap, if I if yes. I'm remembering correctly, that was a big deal. That that especially, you know, 
dare I say it, white kids would would listen to this, you know, to to these lyrics and and emulate the violence, misogyny, and all all of all of that seemed to be a real overwhelming concern mm-hmm. uh, of the of these um, moral panic groups that we're describing. The parents research. Council. Research music resource, resource. council. Yeah, I, I yeah, want to turn. I want to turn this back. I, I want to go back to the college radio moment here, right? So you have this song by a band called the Pork Dudes. Dukes. Dukes. I'm sorry, <laughs> Pork Dukes. And I, as I recall, isn't the name of the song "Making Bacon"? Making bacon. And yeah, the song the itself is all. I mean, not clever, but it's all double entendre, right? Yeah. Like oh, it, yeah. It, it's not explicit. It's all double entendre. It's, you know, and it's not, it's simplistic double entendre. We're not going to go through it here, but it, it, it sort of stands out to me, right? Because we've oh, got I have something. the lyrics though. I was going to read them out okay. on the airwaves today. <laughs> on no, the radio, joking. yes. <laughs> let, 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 uh, I was going to, well, I've got Tipper awesome Gore on idea. Slack right now, so we can, we hey, can. Hey, hey, maybe this is time to, maybe this is time to let listeners know that Radio Survivor is also a podcast and uh, I'll go, I'll Google the lyrics to Make and Bacon and those will be the we'll first things that notes. go on the yeah, onto but, the the website. But I think what's worth pointing out, right, is that it's it's kind of juvenile, it's silly, and 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 compared, I mean, to uh, many other songs probably available at the time, uh, and probably songs I had maybe in my own record collection at the time. Um, it seems kind of tame, you know. Mm-hmm. And and I suspect if you played it today, no one would bat an eye. And then again, that's the changing mores of our times. But I do know that the 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 ripple effect from that fine across right. not just you know radio industry but across college radio was significant and i think in, in right now we are living still i can in in with some of that leftover some of that hangover even though much has changed in in the intervening uh 30 some years right. uh college radio right. administrators college radio advisors are still so often scared of that indecency fine and and oh, there's yeah. a lot of and hyper I, vigilance and it's so funny that the er moment here is something that is kind of kind of stupid <laughs> for lack of a better way of, of putting it Do you, you know and, and kate i wonder is i mean why that song was there was there something else afoot or was it just convenient that that was just the one that happened to get more than one play or something i don't know it's yeah so right weird. it was the right place at the right time kind yeah. of situation because so much had been building for such a long time and you know the pmrc was really pushing for you know voluntary behavior change so you know to make a long story short this that's the origins of the parental advisory stickers that get put onto cds which you know have all sorts of ramifications but the goal which is how to, which is how gen x knew which cds were cool <laughs> exactly cool, cool yeah CD i heard that marker. too it's like a recommendation yeah. yeah, buy this one. Um, but you know, the idea was you're going to change people's behavior kind of at the consumer level and get them to act differently or make different consumer choices. So it was a way to influence stations to change what they were doing, to change their policies. And the FCC does make another ruling that kind of limits um, or, or makes it much un- much more much less clear what is permissible because they changed basically the standard from being obscene from the seven dirty words that you can't say on the air set up by the Pacifica found um, Pacifica versus FCC um, 
Supreme Court case in 1978 about the George Carlin skit, which kind of set up, you know, sort of, here's the things you actually can't say on the air. In 1987, it gets kind of broadened to, you know, kind of this innuendo, you know, sort of, you know, bodily functions and, and various things. So it makes it much less clear to program directors which songs they should X out on a CD that they're going to put into rotation. Right. And, and, and the thing is, they use the word indecent. And, and the funny thing mm-hmm. about the word indecent is that outside of uh, the Federal Communications Commission policy, it has no legal standard. Mm-hmm. It does not there's there's no uh, you can't be arrested for indecency, for instance, uh, you know, there's no other standard. It really only sits in this one policy within the Federal Communications Commission. So it's so it's also exactly. weird and and, and it, it doesn't and carry a good ongoing, definition. Yeah. Yeah. It's an ongoing. Every time I go to a college radio conference and there's a panel of lawyers, you know, the the question to answer session with lawyers from college radio um, participants, you know, is always focusing on the nitty gritty of, is this indecent? Can I play this on the radio? Because there's so much, it feels so amorphous to everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and it's, I mean, we live in a time now where it's, it made a lot more sense in 1965 or 1996 for the forces of censorship to focus on radio and to try to change the culture by, by forcing radio to be more quote unquote decent, but it's completely nuts now because every child has access to all kinds of content online and so it's you know including just regular old pop music and uncensored lyrics and so to focus to hyper focus on radio um is an anachronism it's a historical Mm -hmm. anachronism that you know because i mean radio is less accessible to youth than the internet is and so why is it i mean that's a that might be a um that might just be a rant so, Kate Jewell, you are a professor of history at Fitchburg State uh, University in Massachusetts. You're writing a book about the history of college radio, focusing in on these key years when it enters the FM dial from the 60s in through the 90s. And we were just talking about, you know, indecency, this this hard to fathom amorphous term on about naughty stuff on the radio and television. And, you know, so in 19, you know, 85 around, you know, KCSB, uh, which is the the station at the University of California, Santa Barbara, gets a fine, right? And it's it's one of the kind of one of the first really uh, for playing a song, for just playing one song called Making Bacon on the Radio. What does that do? to college radio what what happens thereafter when sort of now everyone is is sent scrambling thinking oh my good, goodness which of these songs on, on an album might get us a fifteen thousand dollar fine mm-hmm. yeah it's it's the chilling effect and what you start to see across stations are them implementing especially when the fcc in 1987 issues new rule new rule language about this that um some stations precede that and they're saying, you know, we really want to avoid this. If we get a $10,000 fine, we're done. We're toast. And a lot of times you also have university lawyers insisting that we draft a new policy for the station or because the license holder, the university, doesn't want any trouble. And so they start implementing much, um, you know, more strict rules on what they're playing or what you can say in your DJ banter uh, in between songs which is also a, a lot of times a source of, of complaints. And, and 
you know, so you'd have DJ quizzes that, you know, to get onto the air that would have you list out the words that you couldn't say. That was a quiz I actually took. Um, and as well as describe all of the other types of things. And the emphasis always was on the individual DJ to pre-screen what you are going to play on the air because it rests with you. And I think that really was the the key love, the key tool, you know, to have some, you know, 18 or 19 year old, you know, stick them on the microphone of a 20,000 watt station in a metropolitan market and say, you know, if we get fined and the station goes off the air, it is your fault. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And Kate, Kate Jewel, you were talking earlier about how, you know, college radio played such an important role in hip hop culture. I'm imagining that, this would have a real chilling effect on the types of DJs that would be allowed to have shows at college radio stations after this kind of policy becomes implemented. I mean, is that the case? Is there any evidence that, um, you know, that that racist choices were made about who could have a college radio show after these fears were increased of getting a fine for indecency? Yeah, I mean, the numbers, it's hard to collect numbers on this kind of thing um, or any kind of statistics. And, you know, what you end, end up left doing is kind of reading a silence. And, you know, what uh, what are we going to actually find on the airwaves? But it's true that that these larger conversations that are taking place are definitely influencing um, what stations are doing. And and a lot of the pressure comes, you know, not from the FCC. Really, the FCC doesn't really want to adjudicate these kinds of cases. What they want to do is scare the license holders enough so that they'll do the work for them. And that that's kind of been their MO, you know, through the 70s when stations were really, you know, kind of amateur, known for amateurism and, you know, silly hijinks on the air by by college students joking around. Um, and it, the, the goal was to get university presidents or boards of trustees to hire professional staff to, you know, upgrade the sound. Um, but then you have people outside the university who are also, um, issuing these warnings. I have a newspaper article I posted on Twitter from 1993 in Chicago, and it was actually a city councilman who was looking at what was going on in WHPK. And, you know, he saw the station as broadcasting all kinds of offensive things, you know, for many different types of reasons. Um, one of them was a, a show that, um, you know, he, he saw it as just, you know, being kind of generally racist in its content and, you know, just kind of insensitive to the community members who are listening, um, potentially listening in. And, you know, there are other other areas of the country where you see um, hip hop getting scrutinized by, by community members and, and, and wondering you know, what 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 is next, what's going to happen. But I think the emphasis really was on. That, you know, chilling people enough so that they wouldn't do anything. So you don't have those problems. And it, what ends up happening in a lot of stations, I think almost every college DJ I, I talk to can name, you know, sometime when they were there that somebody from the community would call and say, you know, I think I heard a swear word, a swear word on your, on that song. I happened to me, you know, it's a guy in East Nashville who would routinely call um, WRVU at Vanderbilt and, and threaten to tune into the FCC because he heard something. And so you'd go back and look through your playlist and be like, what did I play? What did I play? I don't think I played anything. Like I have to go back and listen to that again. Did I play the, you know, the wrong side, the uncensored one? And, and it was really, you know, scary to be the, you know, the one who would give the station the fine. You, you were, Kate, you were mentioning how the FCC really put a lot of onus on license holders, which often are universities in the case of college radio. 
And, and I know that, that there are universities that, you know, college radio is in this weird sort of place where you don't, if you have an FCC license station, you don't really have 100% freedom of expression or freedom of speech because you do have these FCC rules. Um, and, and license holders can have their own rules too. So I'm wondering if you've run across any of these rules that particular universities have, have had as far as content. And I'm, I'm thinking specifically about, you know, a pretty large number of college radio stations are licensed to religious institutions. So has there been that tension about not only can you not play maybe things that the FCC doesn't like, but perhaps things that are in conflict with the religion that, that the school uh, is a part of? Yeah, and that's where it really gets to these larger questions about free speech and, and public airwaves and institutional license holders. So, you know, say you look at a school like Georgetown in the 1970s, which is, you know, a Jesuit institution at a fairly socially conservative student body, yet it had this very progressive station that was airing PSAs for, you know, local family planning clinics that included abortion services. And, you know, kind of progressive music that was sort of out there. They had... Um, Sophie's Parlor, which was a, a, a feminist and lesbian talk show um, that also played music. And the students at Georgetown saw the station that their student fees paid for as, you know, going too far and not really reflecting, you know, not acting as the public voice of the institution. And when the institution and the administrators put pressure on the station to change its programming. For example, they tried to make it play more sports, Georgetown sports and basketball. The station complied, um, but they added women's basketball, <laughs> not men's basketball. So it was, you know, sort of like a, like a, a tense, tense relationship, shall we say. Um, but basically when they said this violates our free speech, right? We're students, we can broadcast what we want, well, as long as it sort of meets these guidelines. And the FCC is like, no way, like this, the license holder gets to determine what goes on. While there are court cases that protect what students can print, like in the student newspaper, um, Fitchburg State, where I'm from, actually um, generated a federal court case in 1971 that protected the free speech rights of student print journalists. But on radio, those same laws do not Hold. And actually, that same that same court case was cited in the discussion of the Pork Dukes incident at, at Santa Barbara with the administration. They were like, hey, like we can't censor our students. Like, and they looked at that the Antonelli um, v. Hammond case in 1971, um, saying we can't censor students, but ultimately the FCC has the say when it comes to radio stations. And that's what happened with Georgetown is administration, they own the license, they get to they get to say what happens. So, Kate, we were talking about your Twitter handle, and and part of the reason we were excited to talk to you today is that you've been doing something sort of interesting in that you've been live tweeting your research as you're wrapping up the editing uh, and the writing of your book. So you've been posting lists of you know, FCC violations that you found at college radio stations over the years and photos of interesting documents that you've uncovered in archives. So I'm curious, you're part of this whole universe of Twitter historians, mm -hmm. and I'd love to know what that's all about, like why you're using social media as part of your process. So as you know, this is a huge topic and there's so many resources and it is probably true that I have over-researched this book a little bit, but I had to, right? I had to know what was out there 
so that, you know, if I'm going to have any credibility or claim to writing a history of college radio, right, I had to get the lay of the land and, you know, tell these stories. And so now I'm at the point where, you know, I've got to like make a lot of hard choices of what actually ends up in the book and play around with narrative and, and play around with juxtaposition. And so a lot of what I do on Twitter like so compiling the the FCC violations, for example, is, you know, I'm not going to have a whole chapter that deals with, you know, from A to Z, all of these violations. Instead, they each have they each have their own context, right? They each have their own station. And, you know, I'm not going to be able to kind of talk about them all holistically. So Twitter's a place where I can say, hey, college radio and FCC finds, here's the list. Here's the source. Here's the this weird little story that I can tell um, that, you know, may or may not make it into the book. A lot of them, a lot of the ones I've talked about, you know, they get a reference, um, but really I'm more interested in the larger, the larger story and the so larger attention. So is it a more, is it more for you placed, uh, is it a more a place for you to share these things or are you also getting a lot of feedback from people that's helping you as you, as you put the book together? I know, mm-hmm. I know you, Talked about how um, sometimes you tweet out things uh, that reference maybe a college radio DJ from the past, and you've you've heard back from that person. Could mm-hmm. you tell me maybe an anecdote about that? How you're researching relatively recent history, so sometimes you know the living and breathing participants might chime in. Yeah, I t- I tweeted out. It was actually related uh, an offshoot of one of the the references to the FCC finds. Um, it was some DJs from WPRB at Princeton who were there in the eighties, and we sort of ended up with a sidebar conversation. And you know, I I put another set of DJ guidelines up. You know, which I love these. Like they're really, you know, I mean, that's something that I'm definitely not going to be able to put lots of detail about in the book. Like, you know, what's your on-air demeanor like, and what, mm-hmm. you know, how do, how should you divide up the hour, and all of these kinds of technical radio types of things. Um, but this one was really hilarious because it had interspersed um, lyrics from the fall all throughout. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it was 1986, and the guy who I was talking with then tags the guy who said, "Hey, did you write this?" And he's like, yeah, I wrote that. I really love the fall. And the band, so like, the band, the fall. The, the yes. band, the fall. Yeah. Well, yeah, and probably was- a lot, and probably a lot of people never, in their wildest dreams, would expect that these sort of internal college radio documents would ever be out there in the universe for you know people to comment on. <laughs> See the light of day. Yeah, I mean, it is a little dicey because you know, like, there's some people in the book who like. You know, they don't come out super great <laughs> and what they were what they were doing and you know like they're like living down in georgia like, like i know that what, they, what they're doing but they may, may or may not care so well and they might have been know, 19 at the time right you know i mean exactly. and all of us can look back you know those of us who are who are you know uh, well past our, our teen years might look back at it at, at our behavior in college radio mm-hmm. and say oh i could have i, I could have been better about that <laughs> Or yeah. maybe I was right, but I wasn't very nice about it. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know, everybody everybody has said things. And the idea that this gets memorialized can be mm-hmm. kind of terrifying. And, you know, I certainly don't want to pillory anyone. Um, but, it you know, it definitely reminds me to, you know, take care with historical subjects, you know, alive or dead. And I think most historians do, right? We try to be fair. Um, but when it is so recent... And it does 
tap into, you know, many contemporary debates about expression and culture and music that, you know, people get very impassioned about. It can, um, you know, it can be easy. And so Twitter's an important place to remind myself that, you know, people still care about this and, you know, to also give me some motivation to, you know, really write a book that is, you know, a broad treatment that is fair to all of the different types of motivations that were put into this space. And so in a way, you know, it does sort of shape the larger argument of the book, which is about, you know, this is a contested space. You know, it doesn't just belong to one type of student DJ, that, you know, you have to look at all of those, those multi-layered interests that go into it. I'm still trying to get Duff McKagan to talk to me though. Oh, was he in college radio? Duff McKagan from Guns N' Roses? Um, I, I, I can uh, look up my tweet that I sent to him. So he was in a hardcore band called The Farts, F-A-R-T-Z. And they, he, I ran across a reference where he talked about WNYU. And oh. he showed up in the Beastie Boys book, as a matter of fact. I think that's mm. where I got the reference. Because um, he was a part of the same scene in New York City. But then he also moved out to California and you know, that's where he met Slash. And but there was a whole college radio scene over there. So I wanted to talk to him because he cut across two different music scenes mm-hmm. at a kind of crucial point, right, in 1983. And then was in a band that went really commercial. So he kind of traversed that underground to mainstream yeah. through college radio connection. And so I'm, I'm really trying to find more perspectives from artists who, who went through that. Right. And and you're saying that you're having trouble reaching out to. So Duff, if you're you listening. Respond to my tweet. <laughs> <laughs> Duff, if you're a radio so, survivor fan. What's the, um, have you gotten much response then uh, from your tweets out there? Is are, are you, are some folks who maybe you didn't know entering your universe uh, reacting to some things you're, you're saying about college radio? Yeah. I had just from the FCC thread, I had at least three interviews oh, that wow. I ended up. Um, talking with with uh, various people from the Berkeley station to um, the University of Illinois station and people who are coming up with progressive programming and then going on to you know work in at record labels and then form their own bands and you know become pretty successful through that. Um, so yeah, it's definitely it's definitely garnered me a lot of interesting interviews and stories. And it, it, it feels very serendipitous sometimes. It's like, I really want to know more about this. And I'll kind of go onto Twitter and be like, okay, what can I kind of find? And I just keep, I just follow these threads. And somehow I end up with these interviews with people who are like at the right place at the right time and are able to like really fill in these gaps in the story that I'm trying to tell. Um, yeah, it's very, I feel very lucky sometimes. It's very, it's, it, I feel like at the end, it's going to look like I planned this all and it was very um, strategic and it was not, <laughs> it was luck. Well, I'm glad you shared it because, I mean, I knew you were writing this book, but it was you tweeting out all these examples of complaints filed with stations and to some extent annotated if there were a fine or not. And, and that's when it just sort of struck me how many, how many complaints there were, but how many, how few actual, at least FCC actions there has been. Right. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and how scared people still can be in college and community and non-commercial radio of the, of an FCC uh, indecency fine in particular. And so much around that has changed uh, both due to court rulings, eventually the, um, DC Circuit of 
Court of Appeals ruled that the overbroad 1987 definition of indecency was unconstitutional, forced in place the uh, the safe harbor where from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. It's relatively free, all things considered, and, mo- and, and pretty much unenforced with regard to indecency changed up that you know and we've had you know from the uh from uh, the you know clothing malfunction during the super bowl uh <laughs> halftime show so called clothing malfunction uh through you know you know through to the wardrobe mo- malfunction you know through uh bono's fleeting expletive you know and an award show you know we've seen I'm basically a wardrobe truther i think that that was a uh, <laughs> i think that was a publicity stunt right but yeah. you know, whether wh- i'm whatever so glad we-, we could finally get this out onto the <laughs> onto the podcast i've been i have a pent-up demand to talk about janet jackson's wardrobe well, malfunction whatever we think and how of it. she was brought she was brought down and yet sorry um, yeah. But I think the, the point I'm going after uh, is that suffer at all. Is, is that where we've arrived is that, you know, we're at a point at which the FCC is sort of at a point at which it's called uncle for all intents and purposes in terms of indecency, because it's so, you know, they, they on the one hand, the federal the FCC refuses to release any kind of standard anyone could use so that they could actually set policy, but is now because they haven't done that, they find it difficult to defend any sort of most enforcements in court. Uh, and so it's really not an, an issue any longer. So, but it's fascinating to me that it's still an issue really, if you get into most community and college radio well, yeah. stations. It, and, and even, you know, college radio stations have been given a break on fines. Thanks. Thanks to some recent decency fines though. Well, fines generally. I'm talking I mean, about, and, that, and that's an important point though, right? Is that, it's not as if college and community stations haven't been fined in the last 20 years. In fact, the fines right. come every year. And it was my experience that very much of the time there's all this attention paid and all this scared people, all this anxiety around content and getting a fine Lame. for a fleeting F word. When what really brings down or really hurts college stations is the fact that somebody wasn't filing their quarterly issues and programming statements. Right. It's the very, very, you know, mundane mundane paperwork. Um, But even those types of violations have have garnered very small fines in recent years, thanks to some FCC decisions kind of cutting college radio stations a break. Cutting all actually Um, stations a break based upon their ability to pay. Yeah. Yeah, well, in college stations specifically, yeah. um, you know, based on this one particular case. But, um, but Kate, like the point I want to make with that is that this chilling effect that you've been talking about, that continues. Um, and, and I see this when, when stations give up their licenses and, and specifically say they'll tell the media, administrators will tell the media, you know, things like that they were afraid of massive fines that people were telling them they were going to get for various things. So it's it's mm-hmm. rather unfortunate that there is this chill that well, you know has led to stations giving up licenses. I mean it's interesting because I think there's a very short window when the fines were ever really about the indecency mm-hmm. or the expletive. Like it's usually about something else that gets the real, you know, hammer dropped. And so, you know, the KCSB fine came at a moment when it really was like the national conversation was about, you know, icky things being said in songs. And so it was about culture wars, but that doesn't last all that long um, because, you know, first of all, stations do by and large what they wanted them to do, right? They get that voluntary action in place. 
and students are so scared of doing anything wrong. But, you know, the real form of censorship is in, you know, who actually gets hurt at all. You know, that it's not even about, you know, it's, it's the hip hop show not getting on the air or, you know, the Haitian Creole state uh, show getting kicked off the air because they're airing political content in Creole mm-hmm. that, you know, other that, you know, is going to a certain population that can understand it. And, you know, the administrators don't or, you know, a show that was, you know, a Celtic show that was doing sort of pro IRA statements, right, that they're cutting those and that that's really where you see. Um, the influence. And then that gets to these larger questions about who actually are these stations for and that the, the the indecency or the obscenity is really kind of beside the point. And that's why you don't see, you know, I was listening to a local radio show recently and I was driving along and I counted at least four violations (laughs) in one show. Is it a non-commercial station? Non-commercial station from like two to four PM, you know, so yeah. definitely. Well, so you know, it was like, but I'm sure they didn't bat an eye. Kate, your your book is focusing on college radio up until the year 1996, which I think, um, to my mind, that's right before the internet matters. And so I'm wondering if, if all of this again is just an anachronism. Do you? I mean, this is more. This is beyond the scope of your book. But I'm wondering if we're in a different era as far as the FCC and indecency since. Since it, it really, no one could possibly think it matters anymore if an expletive is on the radio, but like available on the stream, which is more accessible to youth anyway. So who are they protect? They're protecting like uh, old, old people from indecency, not the youth. And like, uh, is it even an issue anymore? Um, well, I think it is because, you know, it is sort of that underlying assumption that matters in, you know, what the station becomes. And so I do, you know, I have a coda at the end of the book that kind of goes into, you know, the era of streaming and those, you know, high web royalty rates and all the conversation about that and, you know, kind of what stations become. And, you know, I think another sort of elephant in the room in the 70s and the 80s, particularly the 80s, is National Public Radio. Because it's not necessarily... Like, oh, the station gets this fine and it's expensive and it breaks our budget. It's, oh, we get in trouble with the FCC, whether we're fined or not. You know, maybe it costs some legal fees or something. It's that that then prompts the administration to say, well, we're going to take the station and go NPR. You know, so similar with the Internet, the conversation is really not like, you know, this form of expression versus this limited one over here. And one provides us more freedom than the other. It's more about college radio, you know, and where it exists within this kind of, you know, media ecosystem and the functions that it plays and what the incentives are to universities to have a station at all or to have one with a certain type of content that, you know, the reason that they get into the college radio game in the beginning, it's actually... I'd say it's much more of a, of a continuum. But college and, colleges and universities get into college radio for you know a bunch of different reasons to train students on the air, to serve pedagogical functions, um, but also to be that public face of the institution mm. and to endear themselves with certain audiences that they want to associate with. And a lot of it are alumni, 
in the area. And what alumni, alumni don't want to hear a noise program at 3.30 in the afternoon. They want to hear Terry Gross, by and large. And so, you know, what, what are the incentives being placed on the administrator uh, hmm. to do that? So in that case, you know, the, the obscenity and the expression becomes a tool, you know, to do something that they already wanted to do. Right. Instead of, you know, if, if the university, and that's what's so interesting about the KCSB case is the university defended the station. Hmm. Right. That's a, I think it's a great place to, to kind of wrap it up. I want to let everyone know that you can find our podcast at radiosurvivor.com. It's there every single week. And we'll also have show notes so you can follow up on all these various different references and some books that were mentioned. It's, it's a good rabbit hole to go down with us. Uh, we enjoy it a lot. We think you'll enjoy it too. If you have any comments about the program, please send us an email to podcast at radiosurvivor.com. Of course, you can find us on Twitter and on Facebook as well. We love to hear from folks who listen in. And, uh, you know, we take a lot of suggestions. We answered pretty much everybody who drops us a line. And we're always looking for new areas to cover, new things we should look at. Um, So if you particularly found this topic today interesting, uh, college radio of the supposed so-called golden era from the 1960s and 1980s gosh there's so much more for you to find there at radiosurvivor.com if you, if you haven't looked out for that thank you so much kate jewel your professor of history at fitchburg state university and uh is your book have a title yet it does is live from the underground and right now the subtitle is a history of college radio okay and we can look for that coming out soon it's, it'll be from unc press probably sometime uh late next year you know it's due next june um, okay. but i appreciate the chance to be able to talk oh about this it. is great <laughs> and and uh folks should follow you on twitter actually what's your what's your twitter handle it's uh it's my high school nickname katis jewel k-a-t-i-s-j-e-w-e-l-l so uh thank you I'll again kate for joining us thank you eric and jennifer and thank you to everyone who's listened in this hour 